You've made it to Not Billable, the Law Trades podcast that brings you bite-sized legal and business news updates, full event replays, and conversations with legal pros about what's going on behind the scenes every week. Stop the clock, put the timesheet down, it's time to get started. Hey everybody, I'm Martin Pellet from Law Trades, back with another weekly news update. Joined as always by my good friend and fellow law trader, Matt Margolis. Matt, how you doing, man? Living the dream, man. Every week. Love to hear it. Let's take a look at what we're covering this week. Uh, so we're looking this week at California getting into the ring against Amazon. So it's going to be a big fight. Uh, we have the feds unveiling a first ever crypto regulation framework. And we'll be questioning the legality of Ron DeSantis's recent uh, political stunt with some migrants that I'm sure you've heard about. Plus, we'll take a look at the GRE versus LSAT, uh, Johnson & Johnson, which is trying to rewrite some corporate law, and an update on Trump's legal woes. So let's get into things here. First up, California is filing an antitrust lawsuit against Amazon. No surprise there. Amazon is already facing something similar in the EU and was facing up until the spring something similar from Washington, D.C. And basically what California is claiming is that Amazon is setting a price floor right on its site by punishing any seller who tries to lower costs on rival websites, right? California AG Rob Bonta is like, that's a no-go. That's a big problem. We've talked about this many times here, haven't we? Yep. It's interesting. So that's the anti-competitive nature of it, or at least what they're alleging. I mean, listen, we were we were fully expecting to see something from California. To be honest with you, I think we've talked about this in the past where we probably expected to see the, at least some sort of state enforcement action from right. a slew of other states. I think, right. one, it's a big target. Not to say Amazon is doing these things or that they're not doing these things, but I think big tech is in the news a lot. So yeah. it's, it's a pretty good target for whether you're Republican, you're Democrat, you're whatever, I, I think it's a pretty big target right now. That being said, if that is the conduct being alleged, if that's true, I understand. I do understand the allegations, right? I mean, that is, in essence, that is anti-competitive. Right. You can't can't lower my prices. I have to set at this price. I have to set it, or, or you take punitive measures, which are like removing the buy now button for my page or whatever, right? And yeah, yeah. That, does, that does have a chilling effect on these sellers. But it's not that just California or just D.C. is sure. pursuing this. It's both of those, I guess, jurisdictions, plus the EU, plus, and we were talking about this before recording, I wouldn't be surprised to see a slew of other states start to go after them pretty soon, too, right? This is, yeah. everyone is going after basically the same charge here. So then that runs into another issue where if you have these near identical enforcement actions, right? You have to tailor your defense appropriately because think about it like this. If I am litigating against some EU regulator in a tribunal of some kind and I say something in a signed interrogatory or in an RFA or some sort of affidavit in California, in D.C. and wherever, if I'm in the EU, I'd be like, well, you said that in court. You said X, Y and Z and it maybe contradicts the position you're taking here. Granted, you would anticipate that it's probably going to be very similar positions across the board, if not identical positions. But you have to be incredibly cognizant of that because, I mean, that's kind of why you, generally speaking, you hire one law firm maybe to lead the defense in some of these places if it turns into Multiple more, gl- right, yeah, like big litigation, global litigation. But I mean, that's the fear, right? Again, you say something in California, you don't mean in the EU, you say something in the EU, you really don't mean in your California case, and all of a sudden things get a little hectic. So, so it, is that know. what Amazon is doing right now? It's like really buttoning up its defense and making sure every period and every T and every line is is unified? I'm sure of it. I don't know. Personally, I don't know who their attorneys are. If I had to guess, knowing it's Amazon, it's probably an AM10 law firm with attorneys that previously worked in an antitrust capacity, whether for a state regulator or for the DOJ or 
for the EU, right? So I fully anticipate that like right now there's some global planning, right? Like this is yeah. our defense, not just in California, not just potentially, uh, not sorry, not just in the EU, not just potentially in right. Washington or wherever, but globally, this is the position we're taking. This is the message yeah. we're putting across. And this is because you have to, because otherwise, again, if you by mistake, you contradict yourself or you say something that may be viewed as contradictory, it just it brings up a host of issues. But there's no kind of like if I say something in California and then I in DC I contradict myself, is that itself breaking the law in some way or it just looks bad in front of the judge? It just depends. Uh, no, I wouldn't say breaking the law, but like for like a civil suit of this nature, right? Like if you, I guess what I'm trying to say here is like if you say something in discovery that's like, because you're tail, maybe there's some sort of slight differences between whatever regulations are at play, the California State Consumer Protection Act and then whatever federal act. Which I would I would gather is probably almost identical, but you may say something in one court because it tailors itself. Hey, I've been complying with California. Maybe there's some aspect of that that doesn't comply with another state or whatever. And you may say something, and all of a sudden you're like, well, it complies with California, but what you just said, even though it complies with California, would not comply with X, hmm. Y, and Z and this other jurisdiction. So that's that's what the fear would be, right? It's just so that's interesting. So the EU has not officially launched its antitrust investigation on Amazon. What they did was say, hey, we're worried that you guys are doing this. We want some signed commitments from you saying you're going to resolve this. And Amazon, in turn, sent them some commitments that some third party who was kind of like reviewing this said was very weak, vague, and full of loopholes. So now I'm wondering if they did that purposefully because they don't want to contradict themselves with any commitments here that might... I mean, yeah. If an AG, listen, if I was the AG and I saw a very detailed representation to the EU that said X, Y, and Z, which contradicts what they're doing in a certain right. state, I'm going to take that position right. and I'm going to throw that in the complaint. It's going to be literally, I'll screw, I'll do a carbon, I'll do a whole copy of it, right. like literally a screenshot and put it in. Right. Absolutely. So if I'm Amazon, my, my play right now is just tread as lightly as possible and just kind of, yeah, interesting. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, we'll see how that goes, huh? <laughs> it's a lot of, oh, yeah. lot of cases. All right, well, let's move on then. Uh, the second piece here, uh, the second big story I should say is after about six months now, the federal, some federal agencies, including the FTC, uh, the Biden administration, have unveiled the first ever framework for regulations for crypto. And let me quote here directly what they were specifically taking a look at. Their priorities were consumer and investor protection, promoting financial stability, countering illicit finance, U.S. leadership in the global financial system and economic competitiveness, financial inclusion, and responsible innovation. So basically, we're getting closer and closer to not only a digital U.S. dollar, but some sort of, you know, regulations that really is overdue, as we talked about many sure. times for this industry. Yep, 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 yep. I mean, it was a long time coming. I mean, yeah. it always happens like this, right? You see a, a couple really bad, egregious cases mm-hmm. that are enough to say, all right, no more. Never again. No more Lunaterra coin issues. Right. Drugs being smuggled via crypto oh, yeah. and just whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, like a Dow gone, gone rogue and doing something absolutely ridiculous. Sure, yeah. So it's, it was inevitability. What we're going to see now is we're going to see players in this industry or is the FTX. You're going to see all the other uh, crypto exchanges and, and lobbyists and folks that are involved in the space. Right. Folks that actually engage in the regulation. There's plenty of companies that are already like gearing up for crypto regulation to be putting in their two cents, to be trying to push whatever regulations can be coming out in a certain direction to make it one, either to make it make sense for the industry. You'll obviously have some folks in there that are going to try to have as much deregulation as you possibly could. So like 
regulation with no fangs. But we're going to see all of the players come in aggressively to make sure that whatever regulatory regime comes out is favorable to the crypto industry, or at least makes the most sense for the crypto industry. Sure. But whatever comes out, we hope it, it kind of stabilizes the market, right? Because the market Please. has been just absolutely Nuts. imploding. There's been billions of dollars evaporated uh, from, you know, just regular Over, people. Not even overnight, like in like 45 minutes. And it's Insane. just gone. Insane. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I, I think it's interesting. The central um, bank digital currency, like the, the, the US, digital dollar. The US dollar, yeah. So they're going to peg. So that'll be the stable coin. That'll, you'll right. peg whatever... Cur- you know, crypto to the U.S. dollar. It'll be just like the fiat currency, actual physical uh, dollar. It just, you know, has the full faith and backing of of the central bank, right? You can't beat that. No, you can't. Yeah. And that uh-huh. makes the most sense. Right. Now, what's interesting is in the middle of all this, right, in the middle of, you know, talks of regulation, talk of a, of a digital U.S. dollar, the industry imploding, one guy has kind of emerged as some people are saying the next Warren Buffett of the space, which is, I, I think he just turned 30. Man by the name of Sam Bankman Fried. Sam Bankman yeah, Fried. The king of FTX. He was already a billionaire <laughs> many times over by the age of like 28 or something. And now he's he's kind of kept himself above the fray as everybody's collapsing with his exchange platform FTX and his mm-hmm. own, I guess, hedge fund, or I, I don't even know what we want to call it, some investment arm called uh, sure. Alameda, Alameda Research. But he is okay. now, he's sitting on billions of dollars that he's deploying strategically to either loan out to companies that are failing, to buy companies that are failing, whatever. And he's kind of become almost the godfather now uh, of this industry. So that's very interesting to watch. Oh, yeah. Again, regulation, just like probably like what Warren Buffett did with, with Berkshire, like, I'm assuming, right? I can't say definitively I wasn't in the room with Warren Buffett, but I will say this, like I would fully anticipate that Warren Buffett did the same thing and that Sam Pigment-Fried and, and and his his group will do the same thing is they're going to push and make sure that the regulation that comes out makes the right. most sense for them and as well as, you know, players that they're affiliated with. I mean, that's just what to, that's to just clarify, that's Paul- I, I think what you're referencing is when Warren Buffett kind of loaned billions of dollars to banks during the 08 financial crash. Yeah, and, think- and then for him, I mean, I... If Warren Buffett wants something done or he wants to make sure that certain regulatory regimes stay in place, granted, he probably has enough control as a result of what he did during that right. time period, as well as in the past, right. um, to say to elected officials, to lobbyists, I needed to look similar to this or else yes. I'm going to have an issue. Right. And listen, that's how the sausage is made. I think, that's how, yeah. I, do I love money in politics? No. <laughs> but we just, I'm just speaking in reality. Wonder, this is probably what we're going to say. I, I wonder if there's, you don't even have to go to the regulators. You can just buy enough companies or you can prop up enough companies with loans that, that kind of, you then remake them all in your image. And then yeah. you say, there's enough of us that need regulation in this way, right? Because yeah. you've remade everybody in your image that need regulation in this way, that that's kind of what gets done and you don't even have to. Sure. But then you get into an antitrust issue. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So They're like, hey, wait a minute. Why do you all look the same? Why are, you, why are all these companies identical? <laughs> it's a wild west right now. So I don't get it. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> Speaking of the wild west, let's, let's turn our attention to Texas, where both Texas governor and Florida governor, Ron DeSantis more specifically, have been making some interesting political stunts with migrants who have been coming across the border. Now, Texas was busing migrants from basically from San Antonio, basically from the border to Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., just caused a whole slew of issues in that district. But now Florida Governor Ron DeSantis most recently bought a ticket for some 50 migrants uh, in Texas, flew them to Martha's Vineyard as sort of a political stunt. And people are now starting to question if what he just did was human trafficking, what, what the legality of what he just did is. 
So that raises some very interesting questions about, about what's going on with all this. Strange. Strange. Is, it's a strange move, to say the least. I think people, what I've, at least I've read on the internet, is like what people have, have likened it to is like, um, what's the best way to put it? I post a meme on the internet, right? I'm like, I'm, it's like meme in real life. Like you're memeing in real life. You're doing something. Not only is it a political stunt, but it's also to kind of just like take a jab at the other side. Right. Much more than just a best way to put it is a political stunt plus. A political set with legal <laughs> ramifications, right? But effectively, yeah, what's being claimed is that he actively misled, basically uh, defrauded these migrants by handing them actual literal pamphlets, right, that, that, that misled yeah. them of where they're going, what's going to happen on the other side, whatever. And then they show up in Martha's Vineyard where they know no one. Yeah. Uh, they did not know where they were going. And, and now a lot of immigration lawyers are saying, hey, you can't do that. It's, this is not even in Texas. Uh, this is not even, uh, I should that, say, in Florida. In Florida, yeah. which is the most interesting spot because it's mm-hmm. it's it's not even in this jurisdiction. I don't even fully understand why. I mean, the long and the short of it is I can't speak to the legal ramifications of what he did. Is it easily one of the most wild things I've ever seen? Yes. Is it prob- Is it potentially in the realm of being a legal issue? Probably. Seems yeah. like it, at least, at least in a smell test, it doesn't smell right. And politically, I do think it, I think on two sides, I think for for some folks, it probably was energizing. Oh, yes, you did what you said you were going to do. You're going to tell those sanctuary cities, right, that if they don't think, you know, if they if they think they can do this, then give them a bunch of folks and see if they can actually put their money where their mouth is. And on the flip side, you're like, this is just the most ridiculous thing. You literally just flew 50 people to Martha's Vineyard, like their political pawns, like their property. Right. They're not people in that point. They're props. And so and on this flight alone, several hundred thousand dollars worth of taxpayer money, which what? Just do a political ad. Right. Did you have to use people? <laughs> right. right. Exactly. exactly. Use actors. So it's, uh, it's I don't know. Again, so I can't speak to the the actual legal ramifications. Luckily, in my career, I dodged any sort of criminal law <laughs> classes or, <laughs> or, or job. I do think something will at least shine through. I know there's a sheriff in Texas, I think in the jurisdiction where this happened, that has already indicated that he's going to be investigating whether a crime has been committed. Hmm. Will be interesting to see. Clearly, it's going to be... Yeah, it's as we're getting closer and closer to the midterm elections, it'll be definitely something on the horizon that'll be a big issue, whether it's used politically by the other side or it's or it's a true criminal issue where. Right. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Wow. All right. Well, let's take a look then at uh, some of the smaller stories this week. Uh, So first off, uh, and and this is news to me, so please eliminate me here. It seems like now a majority of law schools are accepting the GREs as a substitute for the LSAT test which is something that I guess began in 2016 at Arizona Law. So what's going on? So there's been talk about the LSAT being like, um, can I curse on this? Am I allowed to curse on this? I don't know if I can. I'm going to hold off. Next episode, you'll see me cursing a lot if I find out I can do that. (laughs) Stay tuned, folks. Stay tuned, guys. I'm going to use the word malarkey. I feel I've always mm. wanted to use that. But the LSAT's a bit. The LSAT is a bit of malarkey. So it's nonsense, right? Like the LSAT is nonsense. So the GRE is like it almost looks like I personally took the GRE when I got uh, I got a master's degree, and that's what I had to take to get into grad school. And it looks almost like um almost looks like the ACT SAT kind of test, yeah. more of a traditional standardized test. Some schools have found the GRE as a better indicator of like a better acceptance test. It's more, I guess I would say probably more holistic of general, like, I guess, aptitude. Where yeah. the LSAT, you have the logic games, you have the well, reading comprehension is important, which the GRE has as well. But it, it's just maybe not a best indicator of who should go to law school and who shouldn't, or or the tier of law school you should go to. Is there any parallel between the LSAT and the bar exam? 
Maybe. I've heard those allusions made where people have said that the LSAT and the bar exam both are this barrier to entry that exists. Oh, in, in a negative way. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh, in a negative way. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting to see the GRE be taken as an acceptance, right? Because yeah. it is accepted for a slew of other grad school programs. Like for me, think about it. I got a master's in, in politics, in public policy. And then I took an LSAT. And to be honest with you, the classes weren't very far off. It was a probably, it, it probably could have ran parallel. Sure. GRE was fine for grad school. Why isn't the GRE fine for, uh, for law school? Which is a fair, fair point. Is there a world in which more and more law schools don't require any tests and say, hey, this is just not so, the best indicator regardless of what test it is? Maybe. I, I still think you'll see some sort of entrance exam uh-huh. in my mind. There, I, I just imagine that schools will have to keep something in place to be like, yeah. to kind of weed out candidates. Otherwise, a school would be, which I don't know why they would care if you're flooded with candidates that are people that are have paying money, right? Or took out student loans. I'd be like, cool, more money for us. <laughs> <laughs> right. But but I just imagine that like schools are always going to have some sort of entrance exam, whether it's an LSAT, a GRE, or what yeah. have you, yeah. to be like, okay, like this is how I know you're Sure. Good to take, you Something know, to, to be a boy or chef. not. Yeah. Is it mostly bull? Probably. Oh, I'm getting close. Yeah. I'm not cursing <laughs> yet. I'm getting close. <laughs> it's bull malarkey. Right. <laughs> Let's take a look at the next story then. So here's an interesting one. The New Yorker has done a kind of a deep dive and uh, taking a look at how Johnson & Johnson, who is involved in a, in a massive legal suit over baby powder, the talc mm-hmm. and baby powder having asbestos in it. That's a multi-billion dollar suit and... Johnson & Johnson, which is, I think, valued at like half a trillion dollars, is now basically saying we're going to file for bankruptcy, which is just corporate structure maneuvering, accounting in all sorts of ways to kind of get out of the settlement. And if they win, the strategy is going to be likely replicated, or, or so the New Yorker is saying, across it, all corporate law. So the thing is, it's not new. I, I, I mean... Maybe the way exactly they're doing it is new, but this 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 way of doing it is not new, especially in the toxic tort realm. I think a couple of years ago, who was it? Gosh, it was Kemmers. I think I'm going to remember this exactly. It was Kemmers and DuPont. I think DuPont owned Kemmers. Mm-hmm. They, what you do is what these companies have been doing is they spin off the company yeah. or a or a company that they've created that houses all of the liabilities. Sure, and you capitalize them to a point, but not a complete point. And then what you do is they file for bankruptcy, you file for bankruptcy. Someone basically gets rid of all of the liabilities and you throw it somewhere else. And in the asbestos, talc, probably the PFAS, I'm sure we're seeing that. I think actually cameras was, that was the liability there was PFAS. You see that all the time. You see those kinds of, because those liabilities are so tremendous and they have, it's called a long tail meaning there's a very long waiting period, if you will, right? right? Like you can get a claim day one or year 30. You develop cancer, uh, yeah, in 30 years. Exactly. Yeah. If you get mesothelioma right. in the asbestos context, yeah. if you're getting lung cancer, if you're getting whatever else. So it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what this, how they do it. But to, to say that this kind of strategy is new is not, I, I would say is, is inaccurate. Interesting. Okay. That's that. Yeah. <laughs> Finally here, this... You're going to have to explain this to me. You were, you were trying sure. to tell me about the, the special masters before we started recording. So please, sure. uh, refresh yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my memory and the memory of, of our listeners. I'll, I'll jump into this one. You know, I'll, I'll, take a, I'll take a spin at it. Okay, so here we go. For all listeners out there, you're following Trump versus United States, which relates to the uh, confidential documents that were at uh, Mar-a-Lago that were 
taken by taken back by the FBI and the Department of Justice. So we have a case presently. It's in the Southern District. It's with federal judge Aileen Cannon. Judge Cannon has rejected the Department of Justice's request to say, hey, look, I want to continue reviewing these documents. We don't need a special master, which a special master is effectively an appointed judge or lawyer or somebody. Some judge. Call it a subject. Uh, it's kind of like a magistrate right. that comes in and handles a certain issue. Generally speaking, where the context that I've seen it is in documents. I've had cases where I've had a special master appointed because there's a tremendous privilege issue and it's nuanced. And so it's like nuanced privilege issue where the judge is like, all right, special master can handle this nuance issue, saves time, saves resources. I can deal with the bigger issues. And what happens here is the special master will say X, Y, Z. Okay. The other sides will file their objections and say, I don't agree with you, special master, or I agree with you, special master. Goes to the judge. Judge says, sounds good, or nope, I agree with the objections. But but tell me if I'm wrong here. It, what what has happened here is there were a host of, of top secret, secret, classified, sure. any kind of level of, of secrecy documents at Mar-a-Lago that were seized. Mm-hmm. The DOJ is like, hey, we need to take a look at these. We need to investigate these and see if, you know, what's inside of them, if intelligence sources have been compromised, what yes. the extent of the fallout here is. We need to investigate this. Trump's team says, no, they were not only declassified, but there is executive privilege. I don't yeah, know. There sure. are all sorts of arguments. We need a special master to review this. Judge Cannon said, go ahead. But mm-hmm. now you were saying, so now this this U.S. Yeah, District so- Judge Raymond Deary, who is the special master, said to Trump's team, tell me why these are declassified. Very right. first question. Right. Effectively, really a threshold question, like, are they? Why, why do you claim these are declassified? They should all be classified, right? In right. theory, right? Right. And the response, which I found absolutely interesting after the, you know, the team had said, we need a special master, was, hey, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that. And why I'm not going to tell you that is because that's actually a defense in a potential indictment. That's going to be one of our defenses. Uh, my I don't own, know what to say to that. <laughs> my own <laughs> personal feelings uh, of this judge aside. Sure. To say... We declassify these documents and then to say, actually, we didn't, but we have executive privilege and we need a special master. And then the special master says, why did you declassify or are these declassified? And then to say, we can't tell you that, you know, that's part of our defense. This just seems like throwing up any roadblock you can just delay this as much as possible. It doesn't matter what you're saying. Just say it and and kick the can down the road. That's right. That's exactly. I, I believe that is the strategy ultimately is get this. Delay, delay, delay. And what you do is if you can get some good rulings, like what just recently happened with the special master, you delay everything. It goes to an appellate court. Maybe you're squeamish about going to the appellate court right? because you create some case law. We talked about this earlier. Create some case law that is not favorable because you're in a jurisdiction that you're possibly not comfortable in. Or you maybe get a good ruling in the 11th Circuit, for example, the appellate court above uh, uh, Florida. And then you go to the Supreme Court, and if you don't have a court that you feel comfortable with, even you know at the Supreme Court level, or who is the ultimate decider, right? You don't get the luxury of a circuit split, right. or maybe you win in the ninth, but you lose in the eleventh. You're right. at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says you're wrong. That's not great. That's not especially when you're you're laying out the scope of executive privilege, of the classification, declassification of documents, of the what can and cannot be done with a former president, right? In right. terms of like. Like, are they truly an everyday citizen or are they above that? So it's some strategy here. It's, it's, it's some uh, craziness. It's some ludicrous strategy. Look, uh, to Trump's benefit, I, I will grant his team this. Yes, we are 100% on uncharted waters. But these all seem like bad faith moves, right? Even if we are in uncharted waters, there, there's no solid case of why he should 
benefit from this in some way, right? Agree. I wouldn't go as far as to say bad faith, but do I love the arguments being presented by the by Trump side? No. No, I don't. Do I think this is a very strange case, a strange maneuver, because a complaint was never filed. It was just like a motion to, it was just like a motion was filed, sure. but they called it a complaint, but it wasn't a complaint. It was like the yeah. weirdest thing. And it wasn't filed in the original action with um, Judge Reinhardt. So, so it was effectively judge shopping at, yeah. at its core, right? Yeah. I don't love it. I don't love it. I think it's the, the strangest thing ever. And again, I'm not a criminal defense attorney, nor my white collar crime attorney, but I can at least appreciate Knowing the basics of constitutional law, <laughs> this is bizarre. <laughs> this is very bizarre. <laughs> yeah, as a layman, I will I will add to that. Yeah, that is very yeah. bizarre. Yeah, but we'll, well see. Uh, yeah. this, it's it. The special master. I mean, we're there's already an eleven appeal pending. Okay. So that's already in the works. We'll see what happens with the special master. But I tend to think that's going to be a story for at least at least a couple weeks. To be continued. To be I'll continued. curse at that point. <laughs> Can't wait for that. All right. Well, thank you for walking me through all these. And, uh, and yeah, I guess we'll continue next week. I'll see you then. Talk to you next week. All right. Bye. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out also on LinkedIn and Twitter to keep up to speed with what we're doing. Catch you on the next one.